Jacob, I have a question. I hope it's a good one. Because <laughs> I never you criticized know. mine on the last podcast. Did I really? I'm so sorry. Oh my goodness. I don't mean to be so critical. That's okay. Or do I? Anyway, here it is. I probably deserve it. I have a question for you, Jacob. I have now had the privilege of watching you work for a few months. And now you're nervous. This isn't so, nervous, actually. <laughs> no. I. One of the things that I would like to know more about is when you decide upon a text that you think is going to inspire your students, how do you know? How do you know that this is the text that will inspire? Uh, I don't. <laughs> now, I, I have a... I thought there was something magical. <laughs> no, I... I needed I, the magic. I, I don't, unfortunately. What I do, though... Is I have I have sung the praises of conferring often on this podcast on Teach Me Teacher on fa- on Facebook Instagram Twitter conferencing is I don't know where I would be without it but uh, in terms of knowing a text is going to be influential you know so let's let's go through my thinking process on so every Friday we meet for Slam Poetry Club. Um, you are a part of that. And the the 99.9% of the students in there are students that I taught for two years, right? They're the ones who signed up for the club. They were like, we want to be in Chastain space. We want to do all that. A lot of them are some of the best writers ever. And I hope they write forever because they're going to literally change the world. But, um, last Friday, so this, the one that just passed, I showed a, a slam poem that I found and I was like, Oh, they would like this, by the way, uh, this is totally only just for us. But, uh, I mean, I'll keep this in the podcast, obviously, but, um, the, the, how quiet the video was, I really didn't think it was going to be that quiet. I had everything turned up. I was like, Oh man, the audio is bad. I didn't test it on the, the I know, overhead I audio. Tried to, I tried to help and it was no good. I know it's very disappointing, but I, th- I think they got it. And then there was a page for students that had to leave in the middle of it. That's just the life that we live in teaching, unfortunately. So that was kind of a bummer, but that piece. So the reason I chose that though, was it was a whole slam poem about the process of texting someone that you like, right. And go like, what are the, going through that, the mental gymnastics that you go through when you're like, Oh my God, should I text them? Maybe they, something happened to them. Maybe this, maybe this, maybe that. And then it turns out y'all were both just delaying because you were both nervous. Right. And at first I was like, Oh, this is really great because it's presented. Well, there were some things I had wrong with the presentation of the actual slam poem itself, but you know, it, it was, it was engaging enough. Where I was like, okay, so that, that was like one checkbox. And I was like, well, the content is, is relatable because this is the, the lives of the eighth graders that are in there. Right. Because they're just it's the lives they live, right. They're eighth grade. All they're thinking about is who's going to text them and when they're going to get messages and stuff, who's liking their post. Um, and then I know that a lot of them are in there because I knew it would connect because a lot of them have written pieces this year, last year, and the year before, you know, about their relationship stuff. It's middle school. It goes down. So I was like, oh, I think this would be really cool. Maybe it'll connect them. Maybe it'll inspire them in some way. And so that's usually what happens, though, is I kind of – I start with my standard first 
as which seems strange when because I, I think I talk about that part the least about this whole process, but I really do. I look at the curriculum and I go, okay, so this is our standard. And if I need to work on figurative language, that's pretty broad. And so I'll go, okay, so what have we been, what have my students been talking about? What's been going on in their lives? And then I kind of just search. And sometimes I have something in my back pocket that I think might connect. And sometimes I really do just have to kind of find something and I just kind of scroll and look and uh, I look for poems and nonfiction articles and short stories and everything in between. And I just kind of use what I know about them, their lives and make it in the context of the curriculum. And that that's kind of how I go. And I just see what happens. And sometimes it works and sometimes it fails. And I always say this and I say this in rightfully empowered too, which is I, one of the reasons I do so many mini lessons is because I, though I consider those all shots at inspiring students, right? For people who might be new to the podcast or haven't listened to every episode, I pretty much do a mini lesson every single day. So we're on mini lesson, I believe 32 in my classroom so far. And as of recording, this is October 16th. We started at the end of September. So that's almost a mini lesson a day of instructional time. Um, And that seems like a lot, but it's really not because I'm taking these short bursts. But what happens is kids get exposed to all of these different things. So I might not get them on Monday. I might not get them on Tuesday. Heck, I might not even get them on Wednesday. But Thursday... I might just show them something that inspires them uh, to move on to the next thing or inspires them to write something or really engages them some way. And that's kind of, it's just like my, my motto in life. Like I, when I started podcasting, I was like, I'm just going to put out so many episodes that people can't not listen, right? There's just going to be an episode on everything. And that's like the philosophy of teach me (laughs) teacher, right? And I'm not going to stop until it's just everywhere. And it's just been silently building this whole time. And that's, that's kind of how I teach is I'm not going to stop until I get every kid at least engaged by one piece and inspired by one piece that will launch them into uh, a realm of discovery, which is always the goal of workshop. Well, with that, ladies and gentlemen, this is Pam Ochoa. That's Jacob Chastain. And here we are in craft and draft. And I think we've, uh, we've hit some, is this a milestone? Is this, Episode number 60? Episode 60. It is. I can't believe you remembered. It's like remembering our birthday almost. We almost. passed our birthday, actually. <laughs> yeah, we did. <laughs> well, anyway, well, what are we going to talk about today, Jacob? We're going to we dive over some ideas. I'm sorry. You I mean no, keep talking. You're fine. You're fine. We're going to jump into uh, the, the idea of transferring stuff, or, or I guess trying to manage the transfer from mini lesson to reading to writing. I think this is the, this is the, the Holy grail, so to speak of teaching is, is getting stuff to transfer. And I think this is the biggest hangup in workshop is having a mini lesson transferred independent uh, learning, both in reading and writing. This is why people resist uh, workshop is because they feel like things won't transfer, that there needs to be more direct connection. This is why people want to clamp down on their workshop to control everything their kids do. So I think we can meander through this topic and see where we go. Uh, and I think maybe we can help some people think through this process and maybe trust the process a little bit by talking about this. So this is what we're talking about, transferring from the mini lesson to the reading, to the writing and everything in between. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Craft and Draft. Stick around. We're going to talk all about that. Alrighty. Miss Ochoa, before we get to our topic of the show, we have a question that uh, came to us 
um, that I wanted to kind of address here because this is something that you and I have been talking about privately for some time. You have already uh, seen this question uh, because I asked you about it and we, we reached out and whatnot, but I figured this might be something that we could share on the show as well, because uh, if one person asks, there's always someone else that at least has the question, but this one is from Matt. Matt says, Hey team. I like that. He calls us a team, by the way, right? we, kind of, we are, we are, we are against all odds. We are a team. <laughs> it is against all odds. <laughs> I mean, really, by the way, if y'all hear my kid in the background, he's living his best life. So you just let him be. But it says big, big fan of Teach Me Teacher, uh, Jacob. And I've listened to the podcast since I moved away from the UK a couple years ago. However, I have somehow only just found out about Craft and Draft, slowly making my way through the episodes. By the way, just to pause this reading, if you are a Teach Me Teacher listener and you came to Craft and Draft through that, shout out that you not only like you can right. just listen to that and then come get more and come to this the project, which is quickly becoming the main project. I mean, it's Craft and Draft. Who knows? Craft and Draft may just take over the Teach Me Teacher teacher uh life but we'll see what happens um he says uh i love the idea of the workshop and think i am lucky enough to have the freedom to try something like this in my school i'm finding it difficult though to actually pinpoint one web page or site link on your platforms that contains all the correct links and information that i need in regards to reading and writing workshop i'm currently with multiple pages up and open hoping that what i'm reading is the right topic is there one correct site that would provide Everything I need to kickstart this off uh, next year at all. I've been there. I've seen there are books on the subject, but unsure which would be best to download in New Zealand. Uh, have spent the past few days navigating around Craft and Draft Workshop too. So he says, cheers for any advice slash pointers. Keep up the great work you do. Hope you're well. See you on the next podcast. And you will, Matt, because we're answering your question right now on the show. So Miss Ochoa, before we go into like our actual answer for this, I want to address something that you and I have keep running into. And this inspired our work with Craft and Draft. It's also inspiring why we're writing a book based on Craft and Draft. And the book isn't just about the system. It's about the whole every everything in it. It's a very complex book, so to speak. But this issue of people wanting to know everything there is to know about workshop, almost like a primer. There is a there is a desert of resources for this, right? They they exist and we're going to talk about them. But in terms of being easily findable, you kind of have to you have to shift through a lot of information, a lot of books, a lot of podcasts, a lot of uh web pages. I mean, he had so many pages up and he was still like, I don't even know if this is all correct. Why is this a problem in workshop teaching? What is it about workshop that makes it so elusive, so to speak? Well, I think workshop is somewhat elusive, isn't it? I mean, because when you're de- when you're dealing with reading and writing and English, you know, everything that goes with English and teaching literacy is it's just broad. It's so broad. So I think what happens is I think as a writer, you can't. It's hard to put all of that. You'd almost have to put that into like a compendium. And when you're doing that. I mean, I just think it's hard to focus in on one thing. So I think what happens to writers is that that they can't, they can't fix, they can't talk about the whole broad thing and get their books finished, to be honest. So I think what we have is we have people who have written what they think they're best at. And so I think we have a, a, a lot of different resources 
Did I answer your question? Yeah, I mean, that seems like the most likely thing is that it's just such a huge topic that if anyone who is crazy enough to attempt the process inevitably is going to leave something out, right? Like you can't uh, – there's just so much there that comes up in a sense to where you you can only put so much. I did this with – when I was deciding to write, uh, rightfully empowered was, you know, as I was planning that book, I knew I wanted it to be a writing workshop, but a part of writing workshop is reading and going through that process and having all of this work, uh, for having all of the writing in place and all of the, the model text in place. A lot of that does inspire the writing workshop. But when I was writing Rightfully Empowered, I had to make the decision that I didn't want to talk about the reading side, right? I was like, I didn't want mm-hmm. it to just be, uh, I, I didn't want to make it too long. I wanted someone to pick up the book and be like, this, this is exactly what I need to get inspired right now to do writing workshop right now. It gives me the outlines. It gives me the inspiration. Let's go. And I had to make that conscious decision. And when, uh, our friend Reggie Routman, when she read, uh, the early draft of the book, one of her main questions was where's reading in this. And I said, mm-hmm. I had to tell her I consciously left it out. And so she gave me some pointers on ways to address that without filling up the book, so to speak. But th- so I have dealt with this problem in, in real time about mm-hmm. having to choose this craft and draft uh, is going to be our attempt to mend the problem right. of, of merging the two. Um, right. But even on this podcast, 90% of our episodes, we either talk about reading or writing. We rarely talk about both. Now today in spirit of this question, kind of, we're going to try to merge it all together, but I guarantee you we're going to end up leaning one way or another or make it shallow on one side just because it's so wide, right? So, I mean, th- there, that's kind of the reason, Matt, why you might be struggling. I know that I've struggled, but before I, I give kind of my resources, uh, Pam, what, what are your, like, if you have, if someone goes, Pam, I need one resource to understand reading and writing workshop, where do I go? What do I look at? If I want just the essential primer for this, what would be your advice for them? Well, I, Gosh, I have, there's too many to choose from, Jacob, I think. I think I have the same problem everybody else does. However, uh, of course, you know, I'm an Abydos trainer. So the founder of Abydos, uh, Dr. Joyce Armstrong Carroll, actually wrote a workshop primer, and it's about reading and writing workshop. So it's a really small little book, but you can find it on Amazon. But it's... Um, workshop primer. And so it just gives you some tips, Uh, but I don't think it gives you all of the philosophy. It just gives you some, some principles that you need to keep in mind as you uh, pursue the, the journey, if you will, of workshop. Um, When I first started, when I first really tried to start, of course, years ago, uh, a few, anyway, at least 27 years ago, I guess. I've probably been doing workshop and I don't do it perfectly still, but I use Nancy Atwell's in the middle. I pair Nancy Atwell's in the middle with Laura Robb's reading for middle school. And I use those two texts and I mirrored to the best of my ability, my class for those uh, with those books. Like I tried to be a mixture, if you will, of Nancy Atwell and Laura Robb. 
So I, and you know, we're, we're a big fan of Laura and she is, she's a continuous supporter of, um, the work that we put out and, uh, yes. And she's been a supporter of me both in all, like in public and in private. And I think she's just one of the most great people out there. The one of the, like the, well, she, and she's got a good heart. Yeah, she really does. And that, there's a reason why she's been the only guest on our show on this one, because we just, I mean, we're, we're just huge fans. Couldn't praise her enough. So everyone should go support her work regardless. Um, she has a, a mm-hmm. tons of books out there for you to choose from. But, um, you know, I would say I second Nancy Atwell's in the middle. The only caveat I give to Nancy Atwell's in the middle is that it is at Nancy Atwell and the way she presents her work in that book is at such a phenomenal level that it might be discouraging to some people. Right. Because, I mean, it is, I mean, Penny Kittle even talks about, when I when I had her on Teach Me Teacher a few years ago, she had talked about, you know, she still loves the vision that At- Atwell had. And I think calling it a vision is very uh, important because in many spaces, what Atwell does is nearly impossible. I mean, it's literally the apex as far as I'm concerned as what, as someone that's written on workshop. I mean, the way she writes Mm -hmm. about it and the levels and the way she runs her classroom, there's some also outdated stuff in there. Like she does everything in paper and folders and stuff like teaching. And she talks about her overhead. You know what I mean? So yeah, there's things like that. Well, it was old. I mean, she wrote it when that's what we were doing. I mean, right. like she actually created transparencies in her notebook that, yeah. um, you know, uh, lessons that change writers' lives. And I use that all the time. So I didn't mean to cut you short, but yeah, you're right. She, that's, so she's not updated. So that is true. Yeah. And I, so I, I do recommend people reading that. Um, it, it is, Absolutely phenomenal. Um, but the, the other two books that I would recommend, depending on the age group, you know, I think 180 Days is absolutely brilliant. I think in terms mm-hmm. of secondary workshop teaching, I think 180 Days is the the apex of that. I think they do a phenomenal job of keeping that book short and talking through their processes, both philosophy and actual things that people can do. But other than that, um, Reggie Rootman's um, Literacy Essentials, I, it's a huge book. And there's so much in there, but it literally does cover reading and writing workshop from the ground mm-hmm. up. And it talks about practical stuff. It talks about stuff beyond your classroom into a school. I mean, it literally has everything. And mm-hmm. I think it, if you have the money, you know, it's, you know, it's like 40 bucks or whatever, but you know, if you have the cash and the time to read it, uh, I don't think you can go wrong with, with any of the books that we mentioned, but I think those are for people that are really like, I just need one thing to look at. Just pick any of those that we just shared. And I think you're, you're good to go. But moving mm-hmm. on, Miss Ochoa, let's talk about this, this idea of transfer. Okay. So we're on our campus. We're trying to get writing and thinking to transfer across the curriculum. So we're at a, a, a specific stage in our campus to where we're, we're able to even try to tackle that, right? I'm not saying we're, we're effective currently. I think we're still in the, the learning stages of what that looks like. And, you know, there's a lot of semantical issues that come into trying to get, you know, kids to write across the curriculum and to write well and to have teachers outside of English care about writing and using writing, you know, quote unquote correctly. Um, so that's where we're at. But this idea of transfer, I think is 
the, the most important part about teaching. If what we teach never transfers to their independent reading and writing, then we're kind of just teaching into a vacuum or just teaching to a test, right? It's the, mm-hmm. the, my greatest fear is that all of the lessons that we talk about get forgotten once the test is passed, right? That is my, I don't teach to do that. And that, that's, it's one thing to, you know, wax poetically about, oh, you know, I want to give my students lifelong lessons. It's another thing to actually make sure that happens. So in terms of uh, your mini lessons being connected to reading and writing, which one do you think about first? Do you, do you try to connect the lesson to the reading first or lesson to the writing first, or is it dependent on what's happening in your class or the unit? Well, I think sometimes it depends on what I think the student needs. So first of all, I look at the standard. I do the same thing that you do. I look at the objective and I try to figure out what it is they need me to do. So if it's like just identifiable, then, you know, that's simple. But if it's, if it becomes analysis and, you know, other things like that, then I have to start with the reading if it's analysis typically. But if it's being able to develop then I'll probably start with writing. So I kind of look and see what the students need, to be honest. So I'm probably not as concrete as some people in this area. But sometimes I like to, what I like to do is have the students write, even for just a little bit, even if it's like, um, you know, two minutes or three minutes or five minutes, but or, or write from their reading, okay? And then in that... I I try to show them that they're already doing what it is they're going to be reading. Because if, if the students are already doing it, they don't know they're doing it, then when I teach reading, I say, okay, now let's look back at, this is what my model text does, right? Uh, they write a thesis statement. I don't know. Let's just start there. Thesis statement, the controlling idea, the main idea, the message of the story. So now let's go back and read what you wrote today. Is there a message? Do you have a thesis? Did you automatically do that? Did you not? And so when they go back and analyze the stuff that they did themselves, then to me, that's the beginning of that transfer. So I just kind of, sometimes I start with the writing. If I want them to experience the situation first, like if I want to, instead of just pointing out connections, making connections with the text, if I can get them to write about connections that they have to different things, And then I show them the text and how readers make connections. Well, they're already a writer who has made or tried to uh, use those connections in their writing. And so, but sometimes they don't know that. And then I point that back out to them and then they go, oh, but I mean, that's, that's just probably me being complex. Well, this is how we started this year, right? When we were sitting down with our partner, who we mention all the time on the podcast, who we're trying yes. to get on the show, um, yes. we started this year with personal connections, right? Trying to mm-hmm. get them to even realize that every time you consume anything, you're making a connection. That connection doesn't have to be positive, right? I think a lot of the times we we assume that personal connections is some like a positive connection, but like even hating something, you're drawing a connection for some reason, right? Your connection to it is that you hate it for some reason or that it, or your connection to it is that it bores you for some reason. And those getting, I feel like part of where all of this starts when we, at the very core of, uh, trying to get 
stuff to transfer is getting students to realize that these connections are already happening, right? And and getting them, you know, it's that metacognition, you know, not to use a buzzword mm-hmm. in education, but it really is that. It's them thinking about the fact that they literally are making these connections and now you it part of it it's like it's like uh you know what's it the this the 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 first step is admitting it right <laughs> like if we could <laughs> oh, you t- you're talking the 12 steps <laughs> the 12 steps of workshop right the it's 12 like, okay, steps it's you yeah. have to admit that you're making connections to yourself mm-hmm. right i know you it's school and you don't want to admit that you are doing this but guess what you're doing it because that's what your brain does naturally naturally you know, I, it, it is right i mean it is brain science and the i feel mm-hmm. like teachers sometimes we can get frustrated like oh my god why aren't they drawing connections it's not that they aren't it's that they aren't drawing the connections in a way that produces something visible right and i think that is that's one of the big challenges. And I feel like Abydos specifically uh, and, and your work by connection, you're really good at drawing a lot of this out into a visible way. You know, I've been known to talk about the stuff of English classes sometimes. Um, almost, and what I mean by that is, you know, all the the foldables and the graphic organizers you and everything. Hate those. <laughs> I embrace I'm a, them. I'm about to get. I'm about to give you a chance to defend these. Even talk to Dinah. <laughs> Who does all of that? So you. Here's the thing, though. You. Did, we just did a training not too long ago in the district, like two weeks ago. But you did yeah. this. You know, it was like this not thing where it was, but it was a visible way for students to take mm-hmm. their connection to understanding conflict, but in in a way that like they could see it. And there, as much as I do. That stuff does, I feel like, get in the way of what I'm doing. There really is a method to why this stuff works. So I wanted to give you an opportunity just to kind of uh, to to talk about that. Like when you when it comes to these connections and these visible things, why is it that it is so important to sometimes branch out into a foldable or some type of visual uh, creation, so to speak, for students to interact with? Why is that so essential for them in this 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 early process? Well, I mean, I think you're when you mentioned brain science, I think that's number one, the brain loves novelty. So anything that you can do new that's gonna bring some kind of an emotional reaction, whether it's a hate or a love, doesn't matter, or funny or whatever, that always is helpful. Uh, but you're but the more contacts that we can make with all the different senses in which we learn. Uh, as we're trying to teach something to the students, the more different ways that they touch that particular concept, uh, the more they're going to remember that concept. So, so a tactile learner needs to learn tactile. They need to, uh, that's why I think the notebook is good because I, I make them write it. Whether even if they have, if I have to give them notes, I usually make them write it. And if they're IE pieces, they have to have handwritten notes, then I'll give them the handwritten notes. So they get both. They have to write it and then they get the notes to go with their writing so they'll know that they can interpret what they just wrote. But that that physical movement, that ability to fold that paper, doing those things with that concept in mind helps cement the concept. So if they if they look at it, if they hear it, if they touch it, if they have to say it and retell it and then try it and then 
If they do all of those things with it, then uh, you're going to probably be more apt to reach them. Of course, I also remember, you know, I've also studied uh, Howard Gardner and his, all of his things and how, um, how we learn. So, you know, I try to keep that in mind as well uh, when we do stuff like that. So I just think uh, when I think about how to transfer something, I'm thinking how many different ways can I get them to repeat this concept? So that's usually what I do. Yeah. And, I, you know, I think there is there, there's value to that. You know, it's the same way where, you know, I. I know you don't follow a lot of the conversations that happen on Twitter and education and whatnot, but one of the like big problems, uh, problems oh, is probably well, the wrong word. I have to clarify. I follow. I just don't respond. All right. Go got ahead. you. Got you. Got you. <laughs> so there are a lot of, you know, there's a lot of debate, so to speak, around, you know, the, the over the top level of teaching, right? You know, even mm-hmm. like the, like get your teach on, for instance, you know, there are a lot of people out there who, when that conference is going on, um, there's a lot of hate for it. I mean, I mean, I mean, threads upon threads of people just insulting what they do, the energy they bring, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, people are entitled to their opinion. I don't think I'm not trying to defend get your teach on necessarily for this. I think it's great. Um, I think it inspires a lot of teachers. I've had a lot of those, those speakers on teach me teacher. So that aside though, this, uh, I think the the criticism of kind of like the over the top teaching the the energy and all of that I think what gets missed in that conversation is a lot of people are like well it's so much that is such like an ego focused level of teaching but to your level though in for teachers that are good at that for teachers that have the personality to bring this this extra level of energy to a classroom that extra level in a lesson can be the solidification of concepts right it mm-hmm. can lead to that novelty to them remembering it's the same concept right it's just not something that is you can't say, oh, this is a strategy that we put here, right? It's it's personality. It's how you craft a lesson. I feel like I lean a lot on that, the way I speak about certain things and the energy that I kind of bring to my students in the classroom. I feel like I rely on some of that, which is the... I feel like kids associate their learning to my energy, so to speak. Like I've had students tell me several times, they're like, Chastain, I don't even know how I learn in this class, right? And I, I feel like that is that's such a compliment to me because I work very hard to bring my passion to it, but I also I, I I'm very comfortable with allowing my classroom to be a place where, you know, they can have fun and they can talk about the things that they're interested in and they can have, you know, their music. And I listen to a lot of their music and, you know, I watch TikTok. So we, you know, we have that relationship. I'm trying to live that up as best I can before I'm too old to do it. But, um, the, but this, this concept, I I feel like that is, it's such an important part of this transfer because what you want, right, is what whatever your strategy, whatever your technique, whatever your lesson, whatever your foldable, right, whatever you're doing, you want them to be able to connect it to what they're doing independently because if we're talking workshop – it's not enough that they can do it in practice with you, right? It's if it doesn't transfer to the reading and writing, then I consider that a failed uh, strategy, a failed connection. 
And it's in that transfer, though. This is where, when we started this conversation, I was like, this is where I feel like people get scared is they feel they don't trust that that process will happen. So when you do something, let's say, let's use this knot, for instance, because I'm curious. I don't think we ever followed up with this even in PLC. But when you did that with your students, did you find that they're thinking about um, the problem in their stories and whatnot? Were, did you find that that was transferring well over to their independent reading? Well, I think it I think it did. I think I need to pursue it even more. But what they did do is they think they thought symbolically because what we did is we tied a paper knot, you know, out of a sentence strip. And then the kids outlined their knot. And then when they opened it up, it created a place to record it. So we read and we did it a little bit together and then they did it on their own and they were able to identify all different types of conflicts in this particular piece which was um one of Kate De Camillo's pieces that that I shared the tiger rising and so I know that I'm reading the tiger rising all of a sudden I lost the name of that book but it's Kate DeCamillo's about the tiger but anyway the Is it tiger um, rising isn't that the name of it it might be but I'm also reading another book about it oh when you trap it how to trap a tiger that's what I'm reading now so that is uh sorry too many tiger stories all of a sudden yeah but, the tiger rising that's the name of it yeah, that's it. It's the yeah. Tiger Rising by Kate DiCamilla, which yep. I just love Kate DiCamilla. She's a so phenomenal writer. She she is. She, she's just a, a lovely person. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, but you, the kids started finding all these different conflicts. And, and the thing is, is what they discovered was some of the conflicts that they found were similar to the conflicts that they're going through right now especially with COVID and things like that. We've got children in foster care. I've got children in, you know, uh, that are uh, missing one parent. I've got children who, uh, you know, they go home and they have to take care of their siblings. I've got one that won't come, but maybe once every three, three days because she's having to take care and she can't sleep at night because she's having to take care of the baby that her mother just had, plus all the other kids. So there's some things that are going on there. And these, so, so when these kids have these conflicts, the way this boy or the way Kate D. Camillo dealt with it, they dealt with it by putting all of these issues in a suitcase. And I think our kids were able to make those connections, but I don't think they, I think they would have passed right on by it without this little technique. But what we did with the knot is I said, what does this knot symbolize? How does this knot connect to conflict? And, uh, and so people commented on how, uh, well, when you have conflict, you're all tied up in knots inside. Or uh, the one I really liked that I, that surprised me that I hadn't thought about myself, but heard more than once was, well, when you unfold the conflict, the only way to deal with a conflict is to untangle it. And so then when you put that with the kids and they had to find their evidence for why they thought this was a conflict, and then when you use that symbolic, you've got them thinking symbolically. So I used the knot to get them to see what a conflict is. But we started out with what does it, what does this piece of paper symbolize? What does this knot symbolize when it comes to conflict? So I already got them at a higher level. Now we read it and then they start finding those conflicts and then they find backup for their thoughts. And then we put them in groups and they discuss it. Uh, I think once you do all of that, now we reread it, they start to see things they didn't see before. 
And so I think that's, and now, now you've got them primed. Why don't you write about a conflict? A, a not in your life, you know, something like that. We've done this with zombies. We've done this with other things. And then now they're kind of almost primed to write. So they might write a little bit at the beginning about maybe that symbolic thing. They write that down first. We share. Then uh, we do that whole assignment I just mentioned. And then now they write on their own. You know, it's funny to go back to the question you asked me to uh, start off the podcast. You know, how do I know something's going to connect? You know, one of the things that I do think about is the the bigger kind of theme, so to speak, of what we're talking about. And I don't do themes very long. Um, I think one of my biggest flaws as a teacher is I get very bored with the same thing over and over again. Like I don't really stay. I hate projects. Like I don't I, I don't stay on one thing for particular long. And that's been since I started teaching. When I uh, was a first year teacher, one of my biggest struggles with my mentor teacher, loved creating. She would craft like these two week long units and they were great. I mean, they were very engaging. There was like, sometimes there were centers, sometimes there were like mini projects. I mean, there were a bunch of different things and they used technology. They didn't use technology had all, you know, it was, it was great. And I sucked at it because I would like halfway through it. I'd be like, Oh my God, I just kind of want to be done. And if you, you know, if I'm not engaged with it, the students aren't going to be engaged with it. So it's just, it is a problem. So I learned that early. I've gotten better I can extend something far longer and writing doesn't do that to me. Two more days. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like I can (laughs) go maybe like three days. (laughs) On a really good week, I could probably go a full week, but even then by the end of it, I'm like, (laughs) I know I'm trying to give myself credit, but uh, no, you're fine. It's Hey, honesty is the name of the game here on this show. Unfortunately, we work together now, so I can't lie too much, but, uh, (laughs) um, this, uh, the, the, the idea though, is when I try to think of the pieces that I want to use the model text, when I'm trying to figure out how this is going to connect, a lot of the times I am thinking about kind of the bigger themes of things. You know, we've talked about the multi-genre approach, uh, how, how I think about it and how we think about it. Um, but even when we were talking about like, if we're, you know, if we're in plot, for instance, you know, I might like when we're having conversations in their reading, we're going to be talking about character. We're going to talk about what, you know, what the character's decisions do and how setting affects plot and, you know, the conflict and the, the sub conflicts and anything else like that in their writing though, that those are perfect opportunities to talk about, you know, why does conflict so engaging, right? We don't like, reading things that don't have conflict when kids get bored Mm -hmm. with text is because nine times out of 10, they're not experienced enough to know, like when they pick up a book, like sometimes conflict isn't on page one. Right. And especially with literary works or works that have that are a little bit longer, you might not get to a main conflict until way later. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. books are complex. Sometimes the conflict is an internal conflict and that's a whole different problem. Not every, uh, conflict is, you know, something like the hatchet, right? Where you're, you know, thrown off. Not every conflict is, you know, you're, you're based in a time period where people are being, uh, you know, like the suffering massive, uh, trauma and problems like in the, the Holocaust or something like that. Right. Sometimes the conflicts are a little bit more subtle than that, by the way. And I don't want to get us on topic. Did you know that Gary Paulson died? No, I love Gary Paulson. I did not. When did he die? 
Recently. It was like a few days ago. It was just, it wasn't very long because I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, uh, Colby Sharp, the, the, the young man who he's, I've had him on the podcast, but he's, he has a YouTube channel where he talks about books all the time. He had him on his, their podcast recently. He does a podcast with Donald and Miller, but they had talked to him and then it was, he, oh, he, was he died there. October 13th. Yeah. And it's the 16th now. So three days ago. And I was like, oh, man, I was like, I have to talk to Ochoa about this. Because, I mean, this yeah, is, you're you talking do. about I a literary legend. Paulson. Maybe we should mm-hmm. do a dedication. Maybe that should be our the, the top of next week's show is remembering I think so. some and of how, his books. How to Teach Reading Through Gary Paulson. Yeah, maybe we should do That'll that. That'll be what we're doing next. That's what right. made me think about it when I said Hatchet. But, um, yeah. In, in any case, uh, the... Going into those nuances where we we engage with students from the conflict, from what this looks like in your life. What conflicts are you dealing with now? I think that is also one of the key pieces of my planning that I try to connect all the time, right? And we're talking about figurative language, if we're talking about sensory details, even if we're talking about something like a thesis statement, right? Mm-hmm. When we're or, or making a claim. Uh, if you know, we, we make claims all the time. It's getting students to realize that novels make claims, right? There's a reason people, you know, tyrants burn books. There's a reason why the, the artist and the books are the first things to kind of get, get pushed out. There's a reason why countries all over the world limit the, the type of material that you have access to in a, in a government that controls you a bit more. And it's because, words, the, the artist vision is a claim in of itself. Right. And that Mm -hmm. is an important thing for kids to know. And, you know, in middle school, that, that concept is shallower. It isn't, you know, not always, but it is a shallower understanding. You get deeper into that in high school and you definitely get deeper into that in college, obviously. But those concepts are still very real because when you talk to a student, about, you know, what's the bigger idea in the city of Ember, for instance? You know, it is about kids, you know, living or not kids, but, you know, a society living in the dark and all they have are these lights. And guess what? The lights are going out. They're running out of light bulbs and they're like, oh, my God, what do we do? But eventually that story opens up and talks about greed, right? It talks about mm-hmm. hoarding of power. It talks about the loss of history. There's all kinds of undertoned uh, themes throughout that book that if you can get students to start thinking about that, then you can get them start thinking about those concepts outside of that. So you're taking a mini lesson about power or not power, but like theme or something like that. You bring that into a book like the city of Ember, and then you bring it into their own personal experience. When was a time where you experienced someone hoarding resources? When was a time you experienced not having enough and being afraid that, you know, you can take that anywhere. And I think that thread pre-planning for potential threads like that and being open to when threads open, when like a student says something and you're like, Oh my God, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. I think some of my best lessons have been, Oh my God, I didn't think about that, but let's, right. let's explore it. Yeah. Always being willing to explore. But, um, and I think that's what workshops great at, right? Because mm-hmm. that, that aha moment can happen in a group discussion, but it can also happen in a conference. It can happen when a student is independently reading. It can happen when a student is writing a piece about themselves. And I think Mm -hmm. when we talk about trusting the process, it's if you set up your lessons to hit the standards and the, what you need to set to hit, and then you give students the tools and the access to play with that material, 
they're going to create their own connections that you wouldn't have even perceived of. And I think the mark of a, of a great teacher is leaning into that. Cause here's the thing I have been increasingly following teachers who call themselves quote unquote classic teachers, like classical teachers, right. with a, like classic education. And a lot of it is very teacher driven. Like they very much like, like they're, an, they're not anti this, but they're, they're very uh, pushback against the whole idea of letting kids choose what they want to explore and do all of this. And I, I follow them because I'm interested in that perspective because I disagree with it, but they're, but I, I always, I'm always wanting to listen to why, teachers believe a certain thing, but I think the fundamental problem with people who are like, well, we should, kids, kids aren't worldly enough to be able to choose where they want to go. It's not that you were, we're letting them choose where they want to go and being willy nilly. It's that we're letting them choose their interest and then we're guiding them into content through their interest, right? That is the fundamental mm-hmm. difference between free choice that just goes whatever kids want to do and free choice with the purpose of guiding them into a deeper processing through reading and writing. Would you say that's accurate? Well, yeah. And I think that's why you have to stay close to whatever your curriculum or your standards are. You've got to know them so that when you do allow that open-endedness that you can always bring them back. You always want to keep in mind what your your main goal is. Of course, our main goal is to get them to be readers and writers. So you always want to come back to moving them along uh, with that. You know, I always want them to be thinkers as well. So I always embrace their thoughts and they're thinking until, you know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, how do, how do you show that a student's opinion and their idea matters? Well, you make it a part of your lesson. So I do that all the time. And I think that's some, another way that I make, I bring everything down to the students because they, a lot that, you know, I do a lot of brainstorming, you know that, but then we, but we let them share those ideas. And then when the minute I let them write about whatever they want to write about within whatever they chose, I mean, I, I've had them lots of times go, uh, are you serious? You mean I can really write about this? And it's like, and and I I find that sad, but then at the same time, I find it exciting that I'm the one that's able, that's been put in their life to allow them to work through um their thoughts because again if they if they are never ever been able to put a thought down and then deal with the right or wrong of that thought you know the fallacy or all of that if they've never had to deal with that how are they going to be able to think when they get out on their own they're not going to be able to and there is a reason why people like you said uh some uh, some tyrants over time have actually taken education away from people and it's because they don't sometimes want thinkers so i just think for our students it's in their best interest to be thinkers and i think that they should be allowed to to do any of their choices and i do agree with you about being a guide to help them through those moments i you know it's to to kind of boil all this down, I think the getting students to be able to operate at a at a great level in their independent reading and writing, it is it is the process of building strong readers and writers. But this is, I mean, this is the 
this is where critical thinking is. Think of my favorite thing that Joyce Carol says is, and she wrote it in, uh, I don't know if it's in the other acts. I think it's in the new forward of the latest acts book. It's the blue one for people that are going to go Google it and search it up. We've talked about it before, but she talks about how writing is the most rigorous activity that you can have students do. And it's because there's so many choices that are being made all the time. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think this is also why, uh, teachers sometimes over scaffold is because we're aware of that. We're aware writing's hard. It's hard to get across an opinion. It's hard to structure your thoughts in a way that is not only coherent to yourself, but coherent to a stranger reading something. Um, There's all kinds of things that go into that, but it is that grappling with that process, the grappling with structure, the grappling with how do I communicate what I think, feel, ponder about into symbols onto a page and then let those symbols translate into something that's actually meaningful to someone reading. And, you know, we experience this when like to talk about the slam poetry club again, and you've seen this as those kids are all writers, right? They come in and they have ideas and they're like, they're, they're raising their hand. They want to talk. They want to talk about their writing and you walk up to them and they have it. And it's these young people who have gotten to the level where they like expressing their ideas, but they're still grappling with they want approval for their choices still, right? Because they're still, Mm -hmm. they're still engaging in that. They're not fully confident in the process of creating something, putting it out there and then seeing what happens. They're like, I need approval before this. I'm seeing this in some of my writers who like, I have one writer I'm thinking about right now where she is writing about some personal stuff, but she covers it every time I walk by and she goes, I can't let you see it until I'm done with it. And right. And I want to, I want her to get past that. Right. I, I want to get to right. the level to where we could work on it before that, because her, that, that process that needs to happen between us needs to happen a little bit earlier before she quote unquote finishes. Right. Because then she's going to be frustrated when I say, okay, well let's go back into this. <laughs> right. Right. But in there's, there's so many nuances to this, but the, the, the goal and the the process of planning, I think, really does come down to can this translate to reading and writing? You know, there might be lessons that are more reading heavy. There might be lessons that are more writing heavy. There might be lessons that lean themselves to test taking or whatever. But I think the, the vast majority of what we're doing in workshop, if we're trying to really create independent learners, is to is to get not only give them the skills and teach them the skills, but set up a system in our classroom that allows them to practice those skills all the time. If we're counting on them practicing these skills when they go home, then you might as well not even care about it and just teach what like teach to the test because what you can't verify, you can't confirm that they're practicing at home. If you're teaching at a school like ours, the kids just don't have time to practice at home, right? They have they're taking care of siblings, they're doing all of this, they don't have access to certain things. So our classrooms now become a sanctuary for not only teaching, but for the process and for the time of them having that space at all. It's like teaching karate lessons and then saying, oh, well, we're not going to practice any of these moves. Go home and teach. Go home and practice your karate. Right? Go home and look in the mirror. We'll give you your, <laughs> your, your red belt tomorrow. Yeah. It's just, yeah. It, it's just not uh, conducive to, to what we're trying to get. Yeah. And, and that, another thing that popped into my head when you were talking about that student, they're not, they cover their page, but I think sometimes if a teacher will make themselves vulnerable because and write in front of the students and struggle in front of the students. Um, 
and say, okay, I need some help here. I don't know what word to put here. And then let them uh, see you struggle and then let them give you all these options. And then you accept, try it different ways. And then they all vote on which way is the best. Um, Then sometimes that, if they see you struggle a little bit, then it kind of brings, oh, okay. If they're struggling, then I guess it's okay if I struggle, you know? And so when you come around, I see that when they start, becoming a part of helping me out, then they're more willing to allow me to help them out. And so, and also I have a lot of other opportunities in the classroom where the students are helping each other. So I do a lot of uh, peer-to-peer conferencing, you know, or sharing or things like that as well. So those are some things that I do. But when it comes to the transfer I just think the transfer, if you, do, if you don't have them do it in both reading and writing and talking, and even that tactile, then I think sometimes you won't get the transfer, but you do. And I think when we do our uh, craft and draft system, I think having them to go back and forth, I think it's, it's a system that allows them to do that and they become comfortable with it. I don't, I mean... The kids, they go back and forth and they, okay, now let's go back to that page that taught how to do, uh, create that thesis statement. Now let's go look at your page that you just wrote. Do you have a thesis statement in there? doesn't model what we said. Okay. If it doesn't, well then let's see if we can create three, you know, three different ways you want to say it. Now pick the one that you think is best for your paper. So those are some things that uh, you can do that will concrete the learning and give you that transfer. And one last thing I'll say before we go is, you know, there's a form that uh, we're kind of altering as we go, and we'll probably have a final version um, in the actual Craft and and Draft book. But the the form of when kids publish, um, I have them go through this form where they they talk about the many lessons they used in their writing. And sometimes – like we're talking about editing or revising, that's a really easy one to put in there. But my goal is for them to speak to how they're using their learning in their writing. And I want them to use that language. And I, I do. And I had, so this last Friday, it was at progress report time. So I had a lot of students kind of finishing up some pieces. And I had several of these conferences where the kids fill out this form and they kind of rate themselves and grade themselves and express what they, what many lessons they use, their purpose, all of that. And then I sit with them and I have them tell me and we look at the piece together and they go through it. And the, my favorite part is the mini lesson one, because they'll be like, Oh, this piece really inspired me. And I go, okay, why? And they talk about it and they talk about these connections that they're doing. So you can build this Mm -hmm. into the system to where literally in these conversations, I'm doing this process where a mini lesson that I gave, you know, two weeks ago is now being talked about in the, uh, the reflective evaluative feedback process of their writing. So they've gone from mini lesson to reading to writing to now communicating how all of that has worked together into their process. And I mean, talk about a thread, right? And it's also, but we can also have the conversations of when that doesn't happen, when a student doesn't have that thread going nine times out of 10, that student that isn't making those connections is also 
failing to meet the 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 standards of the class. They're not they're not mm-hmm. making as high of grades. They're they're struggling on the actual assessments and all of that. And that's good information for me to have as well. I'm not saying every kid does this perfectly, but that having those ending conversations of them, if they can communicate that thread to me, I mean, they're, they're doing great. And if they can't, that gives me information on what I need to do better, what, how I need to support them, et cetera, et cetera. So I think this is, I mean, this literally from the beginning to the end, you can build a classroom that thinks about this and causes this, uh, this connection. And I think that is where the, the, the growth happens. I think that's why we've been successful on our campus because a lot of our teachers using craft and draft, it kind of guides them through this process. Even if they don't use every piece exactly the same as you or I or whatever, and you and I even kind of manipulate craft a draft to be what we want it to be in our classroom. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's that the process that it does and the process that we go through, the the thinking process of mini lesson to reading to writing, I just think it uh, it does so much for the the learner that you you step back at the end and you go, man, we really did do a lot. <laughs> I know. Well, the kids said that the other day. Yeah. I had some students, but then another one's like, Mr. Cho, come look at my, look at my craft and draft books. Don't they look great? I mean, look at all this work I've done. I mean, they were so proud of it. And this whole table, they were, oh, well, oh, well, she's showing you her, look at mine. And I mean, it. I wasn't even asking them for it. <laughs> they were just, all of a sudden, it was just something that they did. And they were like, look at all this stuff we're doing. This is so awesome. And it was just really kind of neat to watch some of these students go, go through that when they realize that what they're doing is learning. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> it's just, is. ladies and gentlemen, this has been the craft the draft podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed it as much as I did. And we did. That is Pamela Choa. I am Jacob Chastain. Yep. We are two seventh grade teachers down here in the state of Texas, by the way, shout out to those of you. We got two, more five-star reviews on the podcast recently. So thank you very much to those of you that did it. Remember, you can rate the podcast as well. It's one of the best ways you can support the show. It is not because of our egos and we need those reviews. It's because it really does help the show rank up there on the charts. And that means more people will find the podcast. So if you enjoyed this podcast, if you think other people will enjoy this podcast, when you rate and review, you ensure that happens. You also ensure that happens by following the podcast, aka subscribing so you don't miss an episode. We drop an episode every single Friday. Friday. Share this with your PLC. Have a conversation. Remember, if you want your question answered on the podcast, you can send a DM to me via my social media, or you can submit it at craftthedraftworkshop.com. And there's a submit a question button. You click that and you just write whatever you want. You can send a compliment, whatever you want to be read on the show. We will make it happen, you guys. By the way, we record pretty much on the dot every Saturday. So if you get that question in before, a Saturday, then it'll probably get featured. So try to uh, make that happen if you want it in there. I always make a post. You can like us over there on Facebook and everywhere else, you guys. But thank you for listening. Have a good one and know that we are here for you. <laughs>